Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to another exciting edition of RundgrenRadio.com. A little breathless action there from a little old album called Something Anything, released 40 years ago by Todd Rundgren. We're going to be discussing all things Something Anything tonight. But first, I need to make a little announcement. Doug is not here tonight. He may join us a little while later, but he's taken some well-deserved time off tonight and we were we are going to have a special guest co-host with me tonight, Mr. Tom Jennings. Y'all do know him. He's been on the show a couple of times. In fact, he's hosted all by his lonesome. <laughs> uh, our guest also, we're going to have Paul Myers, who, of course, authored the book, A Wizard, A True Star, Todd Rundgren in the studio. And then after that, we're going to have Bill Bricker, calling in about his uh, Something Anything ad for Rolling Stone. So I think we're going to have a good time tonight, and the chat is open. Uh, and if you want to call in, feel free to do so. It's 646-716-9262, and you've got to press 1 if you uh, want to be heard. Otherwise, if you just want to listen then just just listen, and it's all good. I'm your host tonight, Cruiser Mel from Dallas, Texas. I'd like to say uh, uh, healing vibes are going to our East Coast here in America. Uh, The hurricane was a booger, and um, she definitely left her mark. Uh, So uh, our thoughts and prayers are with all of you guys, whether or not you've got power or water or whatever. Anyway, hope things get cleared up for you very soon. we got a few announcements tonight before we get down to the real business of it all. There are still two more Ethel and Todd shows. Uh, one is tonight in Cerritos, California, Southern California, and then Saturday night in Davis. And I have a special note about that particular show. Uh, there is a pre-show meetup at the Crapery there in Davis, and that's going to be at 5 o'clock. Roger Linder's putting it together, I believe. So feel free to join all the other Todd fans there before the show. And there's also another Ethel and Todd show in April, April 6th. That's going to be in Park City, Utah. Speaking of Todd shows, we've got Todd with the Metropole Orchestra in Amsterdam, Take two coming up on the 11th of November, so that's just in just a few short days. Also, some Ringo shows, Ringo's All-Star Band have been announced, uh, Down Under. On the 7th of February, Christchurch, New Zealand, 
the 9th in Auckland, New Zealand. Uh, February 25th and 26th, two shows in Tokyo. The 27th in Nagoya. I may be saying that wrong. I apologize. And uh, March 1st in Osaka. We've got all we know so far about the Todd Stock 2. I know everyone's dying to know. We just don't know much at all. But we have heard uh, that it is going to be in somewhere in the central United States, the central time zone. So that narrows it down a little bit. And I believe it's going to be June 16th until the 22nd, of course, Todd's birthday. I want to mention the Todd store, toddstore.com. They've got some really cool stuff on their website. Uh, you can get everything from uh, Tiki Todd shirts to DVDs of the Todd Healing Tour, CDs for that as well. Uh, the T-shirts that were made for the two Agora shows in Cleveland, I'm wearing mine right now. It's so soft and cuddly. I just adore it. Uh, and they've got these the liver tiki scubes, which I think are kind of uh, shot glasses, oversized shot glasses. Uh, they're really cute. Uh, so go check out thetoddstore.com when you get a chance. And uh, maybe you'll find something there that you like and order it up, and they'll get it shipped right out to you. Uh, the Letterman Show. Remember when Todd was on the Letterman Show a few weeks ago? And it was so maddening when they would cut to commercial. So you'd get to hear two measures of a song, and then they'd come back and you'd hear the last two measures of it. And uh, David would make jokes about wishing he had written that song. But uh, apparently now at CBS.com, you can go and see the full episode. I tried to figure it out how to do it today. And I had no luck, but it is possible. You just got to figure out which episode it was. Lil Kazim news for you. He is in a group called the Band of Brothers, and they're doing a benefit concert on November 11th to benefit victims of post-traumatic stress disorder in Philadelphia at a great place called the World Cafe Live. So if you're in that area... You should check it out. Okay, I believe I am joined right now by my illustrious co-host, Tom Jennings. Are you there, Tom? Illustrious. What a nice title. <laughs> that is you, right? I, I, I don't know if I'm necessarily illustrious. I'm, I'm honored. It's, you know, it's absolutely great to be here. I, I kind of bugged Doug to, to let me host when we were in Cleveland, so... Uh, he relented. So this is great. I'm just absolutely glad to be here. Well, we need the help. Um, I I can't do everything all by myself. I'm just not that good at it. So I, I like to keep one eye on the chat room if I possibly can, uh, but uh, you know, and then keep my ears tuned to our guests or whatever. But um, now I've got a little helper with me. Hey, have you have you uh, seen this this one hour Bearsville video out there, Tom? I, yeah, actually, I have. I mean, I didn't, I didn't sit through the whole thing. I um, I watched it over lunch with a a guy that I work with, and he was he was fascinated with Foghat, who's I guess the lead guitarist in Foghat, which is his former brother-in-law, uh, and he died falling down a flight of stairs. I can't remember the guy's name right now, but the but the raw stuff is just absolutely fantastic. Mhm. Mhm. 
I've got a crappy computer, so I haven't been able to watch but just little bits because it stops and starts. But uh, I hope to get all the way through it eventually. Oh, one thing I did not mention in the announcements is that we now have a working title of Todd's album that should be coming out this spring. It's called State. And it makes me wonder what what's it going to be about? Is it uh I don't know. I'm wondering if it could be politics. Who knows? And you know Todd fans love when it, when Todd talks about politics. We've learned that recently, <laughs> right? Yes and no. <laughs> I think it's a, a very divided area on there. Some people love it when he gets talking, and other people really don't like it at all. Well, well if, you, if you had a chance to uh, read my backstage access review, I, I you know I've seen Ted Nugent a bunch of times. Let me tell you, some of the stuff that Ted Nugent has said about uh, Hillary Clinton, especially when he was in New York State, she was a senator, would, uh, would make you blush no matter what side of the aisle you're on. So you know, it, it is what it is. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, you asked an interesting question today on uh, Facebook, and I'll let you take it from there. Um, you wanted to discuss, I think, whether which songs from Something Anything people had – what was the question? Was it whether they had heard them live or whether they'd actually seen them performed live? Well, you and I actually talked a little bit about this earlier today. You know, we we, uh, we were really fortunate over the last few years to hear the complete Wizard of True Star album, the complete Todd album, and, and there were other ones too, you know, Arena, uh, he toured with that, and uh, the Johnson album he played. And so so many of these albums he's played live, and I'm sure I've forgotten a couple. But a lot of people were hoping with this being the 40th anniversary of something, anything, that we would have gotten that magical live performance of the album, but it, but it didn't materialize. And we're not going to belabor that issue. You know, it is what it is. But I kind of thought to myself, and, you know, of that album, I wonder how many of those songs that I've seen live over the years. And yesterday was actually the 30th anniversary of my very first Todd Rundgren concert. So, uh, so I was thinking a little bit more about, you know, the whole live element and everything. So I went through and I, and I counted, and uh, there, I was surprised that there was a whole bunch that I've, that I've never seen live. And uh, let's, I mean, if we go through side one, uh, there's six songs there. I saw the light we've all seen. Uh, it wouldn't have made any difference. But then but then the other four, Wolfman Jack, Cold Morning Light, Takes Two to Tango, Sweeter Memories, those four I, I don't ever remember seeing live. I don't know if you have, Mel. Mm, no. No, my list that I've seen live is pretty basic, actually. But I've only seen nine, only nine off that whole album. Well, the ones that were kind of deep, uh, I went to the Mirror, which he played on the Johnson tour. Um, the other one was there was one, there was a couple that I haven't seen that I know he's played live. You left me sore, and Piss Aaron, I believe that there's there's some versions of that. Dust in the Wind, uh, the New York City shows with Muggy Clayman. Anybody who was in attendance and, and saw that, uh, just I mean that was that was incredible. Um, Slut that was played on the when he had that kind of Guitar Hero tour a few years back. He did the Canadian shows with Tony Levin and then uh, some other shows. So he was playing that there. And then, uh, but then there's other ones that I, I I would love to hear like Torch Song, Marlene, um, some folks is even whiter than me. I mean, those are songs that I, that, I, that would just just be absolutely amazing. So I mean, if anybody's out there and wants to discuss maybe some of the deep cuts that they've seen. Uh, songs that they wish they could hear, which we all have that kind of list, or, um, you know, 
anything having to do with, with seeing or hearing something, anything live, since we never really got to, to hear the whole thing from beginning to end this year. I just thought it was an intriguing question. And how many replies did I get? None. <laughs> None. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. It looks like uh, in the chat room, people would love to hear Torch Song. And I know I know that one would be really, really nice to hear. I could, I could I, I, that. The one I've always wanted to hear live is uh, the night the carousel burned down. And, like, I, I grew up in Rochester, New York, you know, Veggie Girls from out this way, a couple other people. And uh, there was this historic carousel that was at a that was at an amusement park that I used to go to when I was growing up. And I remember seeing on the news when this wooden carousel burnt to the ground. And that oh, song yeah. just kind of went through my head, you know. Wait, was this before or after the song was was out? This was well after the song was out. I mean, but it, 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 you know, like, it's like anything with music. You know, certain songs have meaning depending on where you were when you heard them or if it was a song that, that meant something to you in a particular relationship and everything. And uh, and that song just took on new meaning about, you know, how, I, I, I mean, I would assume that it was written basically about how you lose your youth, you know, a piece of your youth is, is gone. And, and uh, really the whole Rochester community felt that when this particular carousel burnt to the ground because it was a wooden carousel, you know, they just don't make them that way anymore. Right. And uh, you could sort of see people standing around and, and being kind of morose about the whole thing. The way that Todd composed the song really captured that emotion that we felt that day. So it was like the song precluded the event, but, you know, that song just has had very intense meaning for me ever since then. Mm-hmm. You know, I went back and listened to the whole double album today. And uh, surprisingly, I had not pulled that off the shelf in quite a while. <clears throat> and it sounded so fresh and new. Uh, it, and it very, I want to say the word that comes to mind to me is how bright the sound is. Uh, you can hear every single instrument. It. I likened it to a friend of mine once had that laser surgery done to her eyes. And she woke up the next day and she said, I could see each individual leaf on the trees. And I I just, I could not stop listening to it. I, it just sounded so good, particularly the, the, I guess you'd call it side one. I was listening on a CD, but the side one uh, with I Saw the Light and all that, it was, it was just so refreshing. I loved it. And now I know why it's most people's favorite album at least the casual fans out there yeah i mean it, it, it i mean you said it, it's just really fresh i mean there's just something about it that that it, it's i would call it a feel-good album and um although wizard took a, a very different direction and he threw out all these different sounds and everything that were kind of crazy i mean if you go through this album todd was definitely very experimental and you could you could see that he was uh this wasn't just a pop album right a lot of times i hear people talking about this thing that oh this was todd on the the brink of pop stardom because it's such a poppy album, but there's a lot of there's a lot of really inventive kind of crazy stuff that was foreshadowing you know what was what was coming next as far as Wizard and the and the Todd album. And I, I've always found it uh, fascinating that, that Todd attributes this album to um, him him taking Ritalin, the drug Ritalin. Yeah, that's right. That he was able to to buckle down and really work, you know more concentrated in, in less time or whatever. So that was sort of interesting. I remember reading about that in, in Paul's book, 
who we're looking forward to hearing from. Paul, if you are on hold, press the one. Do you know what area code he's calling from, Tom? Um, I believe it was 414, if I remember correctly. I have to check my messages. Okay. Huh. Well, let's see. I've got a 510. Let's let's talk to this person and see what they have to say. Maybe it could be Paul. 510, you're on the air. It's totally Paul. Totally. Oh, it's totally Hi. me, yeah. yeah. Hi, I'm Paul Myers. I'm calling from Berkeley. <laughs> Welcome to the show. It's good to have you back again. Yeah, good to talk to you. And uh, and Tom, that's Tom, right? Over there? Yep, I'm here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how how far spread out is this phone call now? So you're you're Mel, you're you're in Texas, right? Aren't you? Or no? Yeah, where are you? Plus. And Tom, you are in where? I'm I'm near I'm right smack between Rochester and Buffalo, New York. Not too far from uh, well, about two and a half hours from uh, your hometown of Toronto, I believe. That's where I grew up. Yeah, Toronto. Yeah. Shout out to Toronto. Um, <laughs> and I'm in Berkeley, so we're spanning the nation. Yes, we are. My goodness. Um. And, of course, all our hearts go out to New York City and New Jersey and everybody affected by that right now. I have to throw that in right now because we're talking about, you know, fun things, but some people have no power. So I know, I know. And uh, we really, our prayers are with them and uh, hope that they get back back online real soon. And I don't mean on the Internet. I mean in every can way. Can I just remind everyone that if you text, if you've got $10 to spare for the Red Cross, Nine zero nine 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 zero nine 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 is the American Red Cross, and they want more than anything else. They just need operating money so they can get you know people uh, supplies, and they can do all the they can do all the coordination. They prefer that you just give them money and not canned goods and stuff. So so nine zero nine 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 or American, I think it's redcross.org is the website. So just I just want to make sure that because I have lots of friends in in the, especially in Lower Manhattan actually <laughs> who oh, are like you? underwater. And Hoboken, New Jersey is underwater and and you know, they're all doing a good job out there staying happy, but uh you know, it's 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 a big city. It's a lot of people. Certainly anyway, is. On, but, but there's getting there's it's this and it's the city that uh, Todd Rundgren partially recorded some of something anything. In fact, a great deal of the vocals and everything were done in uh, in New York. So, so, so that brings us back to this something. Anything. <laughs> well, let let's get to something anything uh, in just a second. I just want to ask you because I am very curious. What's your current project you're working on? Well, I actually am doing a lot of freelancing. I just finished doing liner notes for um, for Edsel Records as a result of doing. Um, as a result of doing all the uh, Todd re-releases for them, because after I wrote the book. Ed Demon in the UK decided to release all the Todd Rundgren uh, uh, Bearsville stuff. I started doing all the other Bearsville records that they were releasing that weren't Todd. So I did I did uh, um, all the Fog Hat records. I, I interviewed the the, uh, the living members of Fog Hat, and I did uh, I did like basically booklets and liner notes for all these. I think about twenty albums total. In, including uh, Felix Cavalieri, which was uh, produced by Todd, so that was cool, and uh, uh, all the Randy Van Warmer stuff that I didn't realize he put out four albums for Bearsville, and John Holbrook, who uh, worked on uh, some Utopia records and was kind of a was a house guy with Todd for a long time, he uh, had a lot to do with Randy Van Warmer's career. So it was it was just very interesting the stuff I learned just by getting hired as a result of being the Todd guy, you know. So so that was a big project, and I. I was uh, I'm about to start a, a book thing that I can't talk about right now, but it's it's just like because it hasn't been kind of 
put together yet, but once it is, it will be, and it'll be great. And we just finished the uh, the Paul and John, uh, the band, I, uh, the project that I do sort of, we sort of do it both part-time, me and this guy John Mormon, in, uh, John Mormon, who's not a Mormon, not that it would matter, but he isn't. And uh, we're, he's uh, in San Francisco, and I'm in, I'm in the Bay Area, and we, we have this sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, power pop project. Uh, but it's like, you know, if you like Elvis Costello, XTC, a little bit, of, we're both Todd Vans and all this different stuff. And we've been writing songs for years, so and so we decided to do a bunch of songs together whenever we get time. So it's taken a few years to get enough songs to put an album together, and now we just finished the recording of it, and now it's a matter of figuring out how to honor the Paul and John release by releasing it in the new year when, when there's a little less uh, Christmas action around that everyone's distracting, you know. So that, yeah, I've been busy enough, I guess. And <laughs> I, got, I, I still haven't come up with another another book thing that's going to be like the Todd book, although I, I keep saying I want to do Jeff Lynn next. And and I haven't found the right publisher for it, to be honest. I, I For some reason, all the publishers I went to, they were like, I don't know, man, Jeff Lynn, I don't know. And like, I, if you ask anybody, I mean, if anything, he's, to some degree, he's the English Todd. I mean, you know, in the sense that he's an artist who makes records on his own, but could also produce artists at, like and do a great job with other artists, you know. So I sort of like Jeff Lynn because of his ELO work, but also because, you know, he did, like, the Wilburys and he did Tom Petty. That's one of Tom Petty's best records, actually, Jeff Lynn produced, you know. And I, anyway, so that's something I want to work on. But anyway, long answers. <laughs> Yeah, Jeff Lynn just re-recorded a bunch of the ELO stuff all by himself, and he, he uh, played, well, he just came out with two albums, because I would just sent the advances, and one of them is, like, some songs from the 1950s and everything that he redid, but he redid a bunch of the popular ELO stuff all by himself, and it's amazing. Yeah, that's right, he redid them like on the same day. Yeah, yeah. The, the Long Wave record is, is the one that's all songs that he grew up listening to on his dad's radio when he was a kid, and he just did his own versions of it, and they're actually really... You know, people forget that ELO, most of the later part of ELO's career, they, they almost had a rockabilly sound, even though they were known for being the cello and, you know, all that symphonic stuff. After a while, Jeff Lynne was doing more stuff like, you know, that was more rock and roll. Um, you know, uh, what's, the, what's the good one? Uh, well, I'm thinking Don't don't Bring Me Down, but like even more so like Four Little Diamonds or uh, a lot of the, of the later per- period songs. Uh, VLO, they, they, he, he was really into the rockabilly sound, and he brought that to all the Wilbury stuff and all the other Harrison stuff. So when he, for him to do songs from from the old days, from the fifties and sixties or fifties and forties, I think actually, yeah. And he did them kind of as as though they were sixties songs to some degree, because that's kind of what Jeff Lynne's sound is. But he also played the drums on those records, which is kind of amazing, you know. So there's all sorts of reasons for that, but I mean, he, he is much like Todd. He's one of those guys who can just do it all, you know. So, so it's kind of exciting. Actually, that's another good segue back into something, anything, which is the idea that you can play all the instruments yourself, you know. Yeah, it, and now you you interviewed Todd for the book. I uh, just actually just revisited the whole something anything section. Uh, I think it's about maybe four or five pages and everything, but. Um, I mean, is there anything that maybe didn't make it into the book? Because I mean, you must have had hours and hours of interviews that you you obviously had to go through and and uh, and. Yeah, to be honest, to be honest though, I I used a, I used only the stuff that because I had to cover so much ground. I used I used the really good stuff in the book. So, um, I mean, we talked a lot, and a lot of it was unstructured, partly because of my fault. In fact, at one point, Todd like laughed at me because. 
because we were talking for hours on end, and he said, where are you going with all this? And, I, and the, joke, the joke was kind of on him at the end because I ended up getting uh, – I think I got him off guard on certain – like he wasn't prepared. He didn't think ahead to where we were going next, so he was just sort of answering everything in kind of this weird real-time thing. And then I just did the crazy job of editing it for two years. Um, like to make everything fit, but so I would get back to something, anything, and then I would talk to him about about Patty Smith, and then I'd go back to something, anything. So, um, but anyway, to answer your question, um, I mean, I, I mean, there's stuff, there's stuff, yeah, there's stuff that we talked about was just logistics, and it was just in dumb stuff like you know, you know, how did it, how did you feel when you were running to the airport um, the last day that they recorded there was an earthquake, the last day they recorded in L.A. You know, and he's running back to the airport, and you know that whole thing. And I asked him like practical questions, like, "So were the masters already gone from the studio? Like, did you send the 24 track tapes away, or so I think there were 16 tracks actually. Anyway, the two, the, the master tapes, the the actual unmixed masters, where were they being stored? That was a very practical question. Like, if there's an earthquake and you just spent a, a long time recording a record at ID Sound in LA, like, you know, the first thing I'd be thinking is besides get myself out of there, I'd be thinking you know, make sure the master tapes don't get destroyed, you know, and he just he told me what he did, and it wasn't anything elaborate or weird, and just because they were all being sent out. I think he flew with some of them, actually, and and he was going back to New York to finish the record off with, and I think that's when they did the, mo- that, if I'm remembering my sequence correctly, that's when they did the Moogie stuff, right? Yeah, uh, that's exactly. what I, Yeah, because they didn't do it first, I remember that, yeah, and then he got back, to, and that's part of the reason he was in New York, actually, for the last side, was, you know, he'd kind of got spooked in, in L.A. He was working, like like you were talking about earlier, he was working on Riddle in Time, and he was doing, like, probably almost 24 hours straight on those sessions. You know, I heard Prince used to do that, too, years ago before he was more structured. Prince <laughs> used to record a song till it was done. I, mean, I wonder if Ritalin that... makes you more sensitive to earthquakes. <laughs> well, certainly it doesn't help your nerves. I've been on Ritalin. I was uh, prescribed Ritalin as an adult for for uh, ADHD, and uh, and it, it 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 was. I could see why people get addicted to things like cocaine and 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 speed, because what happens is you start to think all the thoughts. I, I have a lot of thoughts, and a lot of those thoughts go all over the place. But with Ritalin. You're so you're so aware of everything around you, and you're you feel good about it too. It's a little like what I've heard cocaine is like. I I had one experience with cocaine, and I don't remember it being particularly like wonderful for me. But um, I'm told that when people get seriously into cocaine, the thing that keeps them coming back, besides probably a chemical dependence, is is that feeling of well-being and focus that comes with it. And Ritalin is a milder sort of you know, but abusing Ritalin would probably be similar to being on cocaine, I guess. That's, that's why you have a milder a, form of that. Yeah, yeah. Huh. What were you saying? That, that I was just going to say, that's why you have to sign for it or whatever at the doctor's office. I, I oh, don't know. It's, it's, it's a controlled substance. And no, no. In fact, the reason I went off Ritalin is that many years ago, I was about to go on a long trip with my wife. We were going through Asia, and we were going through various different countries, and we were getting all our visas organized. And, and I suddenly pictured myself carrying a six-month supply of this very powerful stimulant and then just ending up at a work camp somewhere. <laughs> like, in my mind, I pictured myself working at, like, was it Broke Down Palace or something in Thailand, like some prison camp, and people would say, what are you in for? And I'd be like, I was trafficking Ritalin, you know. So I just, I actually asked my doctor at that point, can you get me off this stuff? 
you know, and so uh, and so I did. And the funny thing about that is, once I went to Asia, I found that my focus came back without drugs. It was kind of like um, maybe all I needed to do was see Asia. You know, like sounds beautiful, right? But it was true. But yeah. anyway, but so Todd was on that around that time. And as you you know, if you've read the book, it, it's uh, not plugging the book so much, but I was amazed that Todd would tell me that every album he was working on at that period, he was going from different uh different kind of chemical uh he you know obviously he can't you can't take the same drugs he took and make the same record he made but you know like whereas wizard of true star he had already moved into sort of more uh, hallucinatory drugs up until up until something anything i think you know he wasn't particularly into like getting high uh, you know he was more about and it was always he always says at the time it was viewed as a voyage of self discovery you know like just to try and break out of his own head, and he was a searcher for many years too, as you as you know. I mean, he 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 was you know reading a lot of books as well as taking those chemicals. He was trying to get you know theosophy and different things into his head, and traveling a little bit towards the uh, faithful end of things. And then you know then you know when he came back and did the the second version of Utopia with the four piece, he had already seen a lot of things in the world and. You know, they were always trying to bring Eastern philosophies into the, and that's what Eastern intrigue is kind of. A, a, that's from later, obviously. I'm not talking about something anything now, but Eastern intrigue was kind of about that. I think he likes to laugh at himself sometimes when you know, like uh, parodying his own searching. You know, like you know, and then at the same time taking it a little bit seriously. So, so yeah, but something anything was definitely from a period we know he was more or less unattached, and then he met BB uh, around that time. So. So, so then, uh, so then he was in New York and much more, you know, straight life in uh, just being in the clubs and being in bar in you know regular club gigs and. Mm-hmm. So the, the New York period is an interesting period, like I think it's sort of that's when he built you know Secret Sound with with Moogie and and they were sort of very uh, Horatio Street was their apartment you know so it was just very um, it's a very New York period for him, you know. Yeah, you know, when I was reading the book, I thought to myself, because you wrote that originally he was planning on doing Side 4 in Los Angeles. And I thought, man, what a different Side 4 we would have had if he had stayed in L.A. Because you're right, that Side 4, I mean, mean, those are New York guys, and they were very much New York musicians. It sounds very New York, for sure. And, like, well, the Brecker Brothers, for one thing. I mean, that's instant New York in a can right there. Like, (laughs) open a can of Brecker Brothers, and you got yourself in New York. David Sanborn, I think. No, he's not on that session, is he? I, uh, I'm getting, yeah. I get a little confused. Yeah, yeah, all those, all those New York guys, you know, and the, and you know, like this, by the way, is a moment to say again, you know, rest in peace, Moogie, because Moogie was kind of a facilitator. He was, you know, in many ways, he, I call him the Wizard's Apprentice. You know, like he was, he was the guy who helped Todd get the guys to play with, including the original Utopia guys, and and you know, I, you know, I'm not, I'm sure it would have been a different story if. You know, Todd would have risen in some other way, but the way he rose in his own career, post you know, post being the house sound, uh, house recording engineer for Bearsville Records, that period right after that was you know he has Moogie to thank, and I think he thanked him. I mean, I'm not saying he didn't thank him, but and that's what was so touching that he went, when he went back and did those Utopia reunion shows, which I didn't get to. I watched oh. it online. I watched the pay per view, yeah. but it was so touching. Because you know that there had been some there'd been some some problems over the years with the you know little personal things that that suddenly suddenly didn't matter as much you know because sure. 
it was it was just about looking back and and you know Todd's been looking back a lot more than he ever used to you know which is I guess that comes with age but you know and it's kind of good for his fans and then I, I am surprised that he still won't bite the bullet and do a Wizard of True Star uh, tour you know wait wait wait, wait. Just, you mean something anything. Sorry, something, anything. Because I'm pretty sure I no, remember. No, I mean, okay, actually, what I meant, what, what I, the sentence that I had in my head was a, uh, on the scale of a Wizard of Truth star. A, a something, anything tour, thank you for clarifying. Uh, a something, anything tour on the scale of the same way that he did, like a, a loving tribute to the Wizard of Truth star album. Um, I would think, you know, I mean, you know it. The fans know he's 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 always kind of discounted the album to some degree. It, because mm-hmm. he feels like it was his Tin Pan Alley record, and that was when he was being called the new Carol King and all that stuff. And and uh, I mean, but you listen to I Saw the Light, those rec, those songs, those mixes. Like I don't care if I've heard I Saw the Light three million times on classic rock radio. Every time I hear it, it's like it's like an instant little batch of euphoria. I mean, the, the, it's a perfect single. It sure you is. Know? Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 uh, and also, you were mentioning earlier. I think Tom, you were saying, uh, or maybe Mel. Just, I've never seen him do uh, 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 torch, you know, uh, torch or torch yeah. song or uh, the night the carousel burned down. Or uh, I've seen him do song of the Viking, but he he hasn't done it in a. <laughs> he's only done the the versions I've ever seen online were the, the sort of um, jokingly, you know, because it's a funny song. But I mean, you know, I'm sure he, I'm sure there's some pretty tight stuff in there. Oh, what's the other one? Cold morning light. I, I think oh, that's, like that's one of my favorites. Mm. Yeah, you know, and uh, yeah, so it's uh, stuff like that. And and has anyone, have you guys ever seen him do Breathless? No. no. I mean, I mean, I, I may, it may exist on YouTube, but I've never seen him do. It. I think like that would be a really nice thing to pull out with some musicians, you know, because it's a really good instrumental. Like it's a really Breathless <laughs> has been a huge influence on me when I do my own electronic music and. And I, I always say to people, you know, you should check that track out because everyone hears the intro part that comes before it, which is, was very was very nearly the title of my book was "Sounds of the Studio." Mm. But um, <clears> when I was listening today to yeah. something, anything, and I came across that song, and of course, I I'm first in line for a something anything tour if that were, would ever happen, which I'm not saying it can't, um, but it's just going to have to be organic when it does happen, but. I was picturing the band that, for instance, that went on the Todd Healing tour with with Todd, with Greg Hawks on keyboards, and I could just see his little head bouncing during that song, and uh, I could picture it. So I really hope that someday I do get to see that. Yeah, that would be funny. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But um, what else? Oh, I went to the Mirror would be good live. Um he did, uh, that. Marlene, he did that. Marlene. Marlene. I knew a guy who dated a girl named Marlene, and he was the. And this guy was the first guy who ever played me that song. He, he just uh, he put the record on and said, "This is a song about my girlfriend that Todd wrote." Like, and he was like, <laughs> obviously kidding. Like, but but um, and it, it it was it, it kind of I kind of went, "Wow, that's a really nice song." Because I don't know, you don't hear it very often, you know. So there you go. Oh. Yeah, you know, I just I, I think it would just be logistically it would be a real tough album to pull off. But of course, I mean, Wizard was was a crazy album to pull off too. But yeah, I don't, you know, it, it, this this album, um, and I think you could appreciate this because you wrote a, a, a book about studio. I mean, there really was a great studio album. This is it. I mean, I tend to prefer live albums, and I, and I love live music. I'm a huge live music fan, and most of the time, if I have a choice between a really solid live version of a song or a studio version of a song. 
I'm going to default to the really good live version. But this album, I mean, just the crispness of it, like Mel was saying earlier, it still just jumps out at you, and it's just, the stuff is just, just absolutely beautiful. And you almost wonder if you could capture that magic. Well, wow. it might not be. In fact, that's something I've talked about with a lot of recording people and uh, and various associates of Todd's, including Jim Steinman, is that Todd playing with himself, laugh if you want, Todd backing his own music and also multi-tracking his own voice is a unique sound, like anyone does, anyone who sings with their own voice. Like Karen Carpenter did a lot of multi-tracking of her own voice, although she blended with her brother. But but like when Karen Carpenter doubles and triples and adds harmonies to herself, it's a, it's a unique instrument. And when Todd does it, he's got a really good ear. One of Todd's big things is his ability to voice harmonies. And like he brought it to a lot of the work he did with other people. Uh, Patti Smith talked about it. And, and when he sings by himself, and when he uh, plays bass on his own track and drums on his own track, you know, it's a it's just a unique sound. And part of it is that he also isn't, for all his sort of perfectness and things, he's not a perfectionist at all. He's one of the more, he leaves a lot of feel in, as they call it. Like some would call it sloppiness, but I happen to like that sloppiness. It's what Jimmy Page had in Led Zeppelin, is that he would do a guitar overdub that wasn't wasn't so slick, you know. And that is, Maybe if you're looking for liveness on a studio record, that's how you get it, is by not uh, wasting a lot of takes to get it. Like You just play with the emotion, get the emotion captured on tape, and then move on to the overdubs. And then I think that's one of... When Todd was firing on like a thousand cylinders in those days, he didn't stop to fix things. Like, and, you know, like, and my only complaint, and I think I even told him this, is... He also didn't, like, a lot of the EQs are very, very trebly. Like, they're very, that, that album not so much, but a lot of a lot of Todd's mixes are very trebly, it seems to me. Like, uh, I, I listened to uh, uh, Hermit again recently, and I was like, it, you know, again, he does a lot of things, and there are a lot of things great, but, the, you know, sometimes I wished he'd, uh, he'd had, like, a little bit more time on those, like, EQs, you know, but that's just me being an audiophile, I guess. But, uh, but you know, like the drumming on Couldn't I Just Tell You, for instance, like Couldn't I Just Tell You is as exciting as a Shell Tell Me Who record to me. In fact, uh, Keith Moon comes to mind when I hear Todd's drumming on that. You know, and the fade out when he's just like like still drumming after the track's over. And mm-hmm. they basically, they basically, I think he recorded more drums than he needed and he faded it out. And uh, he started with the drums. So, so he was playing to nobody, you know, and just like, thinking I gotta be exciting so the other overdubs will sound exciting too. And but couldn't I just tell you it was a great example on something anything of you know, how he got the liveness into what's essentially a one man show, you know, and that's you know, and that's you know, again I realize I'm answering very long here. Sorry about that. But anyway, moving on. You guys you guys talk now. I do I this question has probably been answered in your book and I either forgot it or skipped that one, I don't know. But do you know what the story is? Actually, this is to either one of you guys. What is the story on the title of the album? What what does that mean, something, anything, and then with a question mark? Well, I the story as I recall it, now Tom may have heard a different story, but since you asked me, the, um, the idea was that, it, like, there was the two... The two sides, the two albums, basically, you know, and one's called something, and the other one's just like anything. Any, any. The question mark is anything. Like, like, 
like, what is this? Basically, there was so much going on that it was like something, anything, like you know. And then, but the, the slit, the um, the slash between them, I think, evokes that there's kind of a two a two album thing going on here, you know. But mm-hmm. I he didn't actually name them like something side and anything side. So that that theory is just a theory. But right. have hmm. you heard something, Tom? You know, I, I've always kind of looked at, I, I mean, I haven't, but, you know, kind of like you, I sort of, uh, when I think about it, you know, like like that was a period where uh, Albert Grossman kind of sort of let Todd do what he was, do, was doing. And there was an ad campaign that came out at the time. Uh, I can still picture the ad. It says, go ahead, ignore me, you know, and it's got Todd. And I and I think it was like uh, kind of maybe an, an ode to, to Albert Grossman where he says, Todd says, well, you know, if I want to make an album, and it's like, you know, just make me something, anything. You know, and it's like something, yeah. anything. What do you mean by that? You know, I mean, okay, yeah, well, here it is. Here's your something, anything. And then it just turned out to be this beautiful, you know, pop masterpiece. I, I hate to use the term pop, but I mean, I guess, I guess, really, when you get that, but that's what it is. But that's, that, yeah, I, I've never really actually heard a story of, of. I mean, the other albums, Wizard or True Star, we're probably all familiar with that one just from hearing it and having the tour and everything, but that, that'd be a great question for Todd to answer to us someday, if he knows, if he remembers. Well, you remember, and also Albert Grossman around this time, they, you know, they'd had a big, on the very first album, they'd had the big hit with um, uh, We Gotta Get You a Woman, like the surprise hit, you know, and suddenly Albert and everybody was like, oh, so it's not just, it's not just this, I'm letting my, my house engineer make a, a solo record, he could actually have a career. And then he started getting a lot of attention. And, you know, Albert Grossman had said, if you if you really wanted to, you could be the next Elvis. Like, you could be a big rock star. And and uh, and I do know that they gave him a lot of latitude around that time, like you said. And a lot of that capital was cashed in on A Wizard of True Star after after something right. anything had, something anything had had, like Hello, It's Me, the remake of, some, of Hello, It's Me. And, you know, I saw the light, I think, charted. And, you know, he was getting a lot of attention. And then, you know, he basically uh, made his choice. He said, "I don't, you know, I will. I want to be the kind of artist who makes records that are, you know, exploring." And so he didn't want to go the uh, cashing in route. And uh, that's probably why his fans are so loyal, because they felt like he was doing stuff as a, you know, a, a more artistic base, you know. And of course, he was paying for that by doing other albums for other people. So that's why most artists don't have that, uh, call it a luxury, if you will. And he was well, doing different drugs than the uh, the Ritalin at that point. Yeah, by that point, yeah. Um, the police doesn't even chart until after after Wizard of True Star comes out. I mean, that's truly an accidental hit because oh. something anything would had already spent its real time on the charts, and Hello It's Me kind of appears later as after Wizard had been released. So I mean, that was that was kind of a weird situation as well. Yeah, that's true too, and that's something uh, I, I enjoyed when I interviewed all the the, uh, the what became Utopia around that time, the uh, Moogie and uh, Ralph Shuckett and John Siegler lineup. They uh, they were talking about being you know going on the midnight special to promote <laughs> to promote Hello It's Me, and it was well after the Something Anything era. <laughs> You know, it was already for them. They'd already moved into this other stuff. They, I think they even, yeah, I can't remember exactly, but I think they'd done a wizard, and I think they were about. They either put it in the can, the first Todd Rundgren's Utopia album. So they were they were already deep into the other period. You know, and the, the Peacock makeup and everything, and 
and and and there's definitely probably a lot of hair pulling at Bearsville at the time when they were trying to the label, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what is our boy doing? Like, what is he? And then he, you know, they, and like probably so many times over the years, like they, they was, you know, he was uh, he confounded the people who tried to market him. And like I said, it's not that's no sin, but it's, it must have been frustrating for them. You know, I don't mean to have sympathy for the record industry or anything. (laughs) (laughs) Remember, remember there used to be a record industry? (laughs) What? What were you going to say? I said, remember, there used to be a record industry? We have a caller on the line. Um, Let's see what they have to say. 330, are you there? That's me. Um, About something, anything. Uh, What I remember was, was give them something, give them anything. But give them the hits. Mm. Oh yeah, uh, who said that to whom? It was in it was an ad, an old ad that I saw, and it was for something anything. Oh, so but is it was it a quote from like somebody? Did did, oh. did were they quoting somebody in that ad? Okay, <laughs> I haven't seen this since the seventies, but oh no no I'm not I'm not trying to I'm not putting you on the witness stand. I just wanted I wondered if it was something that uh, Elvis Presley had said or. Know, or like if it was like if it was a tribute like because it seems like a seems like a colorful statement like it seems like the kind of thing that Colonel Tom might have said you know like you know it's possible but I think that's all it said and then it then it said something anything oh cool the uh, I just I, I love the ads that like Tom was referring to the uh, go ahead ignore me because yeah. those those were just classic to me because Todd looks like Bugs Bunny you know like he's like <laughs> you're like you know like I mean, you know, Bugs Bunny when Bugs Bunny was holding people ransom. Uh, you know, the playful Bugs Bunny. There's various Bugs Bunnies, of course. But uh, yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's about right, though. Play something, play anything, but give them the hits. Why not? That sounds perfect, right? Yeah. For sounds like yeah. sounds like something some record executive would say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like give me a was it give me a, a dog a girl and an and an apple pie on the cover or something like that <laughs> like there's that there's that old expression you know like give oh, the flag a dog and and uh, apple pie on the cover and then I think National Lampoon exploited that in a very funny way once um, I won't go into it now though but anyway. okay <laughs> so who is this three three zero person calling. Uh, this is Charles. I just wanted to let you in on that because that's what I remember. Thanks, man. No yeah, problem. makes sense to me. And thanks for calling in. Okay, thanks. Okay. Um, we got actually another caller. Oh, here they all come. Hold on. We're going to start. Let's start with 818. Oh, is that me? That's you. Hi Hello, there. Here. Hi, um, I uh, this is bringing back a lot of memories. Boy, I wore out that album in college, and I'm just thinking I got to go back and download it now. Um, I, you know, loved it, and I, I have a question, I guess, for Paul about the one song that I I don't know would go over so well today, um, being somewhat politically incorrect. I think you probably know the one I mean. I had no problem with it. I think it's funny. But how does Todd feel about? Yes, what? How does yeah. he feel about that today? And oh, I mean, I can't answer for Todd. I mean, like, yeah. I, I don't know. 
I, I don't know how Todd would feel about it. Um, I always thought that the song's kind of like it's about the, what the neighborhood said about the girl, not about what he's saying, right? Like, like right. No, she may of course. Be, you may you the girl you call a slut, she's fine to me, you know. And it's right. also it's also yeah. I mean, it's certainly not a serious song. I mean, it's it's it was covered by other artists too, and I, I wondered how they you know how they approached it, but. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think. Okay, put this way, I wouldn't do it, uh, but I don't, you know, I'm a timid person, so I don't know, like, I, I yeah. wouldn't, yeah. No, as I, I said, I, it doesn't bother me. Things like that don't bother me, but I, I'm just, I wonder sometimes if he could even get away with it as satire today. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's, there's been a lot of discussion about that particular word in light of, uh, you know, Rush Limbaugh and everything. Sure. Calling that, calling that young woman a slut. Um, uh, I, I think that there's also equally a lot of people who are self-identifying as a kind of a, a take back the word thing, you know, sort of, mm-hmm. sort of like saying you, you know, your judgments of your judgments don't matter to me because my self-worth doesn't derive from your condemnation, you know, which is right. that's a huge that's a that's probably a more that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> Sure, Although but he's so he's it's, never it's spoke he's never spoken to that or addressed it recently. Well, he did he did speak to another similar controversy with me. We talked about we got to get you a woman off the first record. Oh yeah, and uh, and there was some backlash in and I think again it was a misunderstanding. Um, you know, uh, there's a line they may be stupid but they sure are fun. But it's it's two virgin boys talking about yeah. dumb girls and the, the whole point is like they're actually afraid of women and and it's that you know and so in the song i mean you can, i can see how it is that people would be if they come into it without knowing what it is it's like a lot of things you know you hear mm-hmm. that there's a song where he says women are dumb like mm-hmm. as if somebody would do that but i mean i think he more than proves that he's you know he totally slits himself at the end of it by saying We'll do it if you can get me one too. Like he sounds like he's got all the moves, and at the end he's just as scared as the other guy. So right. I, I personally, I would give him a, a pass on that one too. But I know yeah. that there was a backlash. There was a backlash, yeah. and he's probably had yeah. that happen over the years. You're right. right. Well, point. but it's a really, it's a really rich album and fun, and I, you know, as, as I said, I think it's great. I have no problem with it, and it's really fun to visit the album. What's your favorite? What's your facets. favorite song? What's your What's your favorite song on the whole record? Um, you know, you mentioned Breathless. And i got to admit, I um, remember liking Breathless, but I can't remember what it sounds like. So I have to no, go that, back. No, it's a short instrumental. It's a short it's, instrumental yeah, that's right a, is after. Is it really the, fast? Is it really, really fast? It's right after when he says, uh, I'm going to show you a game we, we came up with called Sounds of the Studio. And he does the thing with the tape oh, hits right. and all this. Right, it's the right. one where, and then there's a scratch, the scratch of the record, and then it goes into this, um, this basically jaunty little uh, instrumental. That's right. That's like the a quick little yeah. thing. I guess yeah, I have I'm, to just go for the hit and say, "Hello, it's me." It, it was college. It was a formative time for me. There was a yeah. popular girl who that was her song, quote unquote, and so we all kind of had this mystique about it. You know, oh, that's Pamela's song. So. Yeah. Yeah, it has feeling. a lot of yeah. yeah, it's a lot of um a lot of memories. Well that's great. Oh so, yeah. All right, well thank you very much for this broadcast. Really interesting. Oh cool. Thank well thanks for calling. for calling in. Sure.
Take care. You do too. So, Paul, you asked the question. Now we're going to throw it back at you. What's your favorite song on that okay, album? Okay, well, I was thinking as as she was talking, I was thinking that uh, I was hearing that and then saying, yeah. For me, I, I have to say, um, of all time on that record, I uh, would. Um, uh, sorry, um, why am I blanking on it? Uh, I saw the light. I saw the light. But I will say that I've gone through periods where couldn't I just tell you, because I'm a huge Power Pop fan, and, and I love things like the, everything after the Who and then the Raspberries and all that, different kinds of Power Bad Finger. And I, I think couldn't I just tell you always stands in my head as one of those records that totally gets across teen angst and, and sort of teen loneliness. And the songs that Todd speaks to me the most on were the songs that hit me when I was a young man trying to be a young man, like trying to get into my manhood thing at the same time as trying to admit my vulnerability because I knew I had some kind of like the, the poetic side. And and those songs, I couldn't I just tell you, were like a perfect um, intersection of, of the angst that you get, the anger that you feel when you're a young man with the poetic sort of like, I just want to tell you how I feel, which is... Like to me, that is a great song. But I mm-hmm. saw the light is a perfect single, so I think it's so it's, it's a coin toss, you know. Yep. You know, I think my and, favorite uh, one wouldn't have made any difference is also a great song on that record. <laughs> well, I mean, and you can just go right down the list. But then Black Mariah yeah. is great, you know. <laughs> it's yeah, it's yeah, hard to true. choose. Definitely. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I yeah. pretty much, you know, it's weird. I When I think of that album, one of the reasons that I love it is because it's like when I talked about earlier, the night's carousel burned down brings back a particular memory. And I can think of like Torch Song uh, reminds me of when I broke up with my, uh, one of this, this girl that I absolutely love with. And then I remember, couldn't I just tell you, there was a girl that was actually a huge Todd fan that I had a mad crush on for years. And I and I always thought of uh, that particular song whenever I went, up, went on my Todd journeys. But each song actually relates to a different period in my life that, that I sort of clung to and, and it became my favorite. But if I had to pick the Desert Island song, it's got to be Tort Song. God, that song just is just, it's just such a great breakup song, isn't it? I mean, it may be the best breakup song I've ever heard. <laughs> Did you already say, Mel, what yours was? Uh, my Mine would be Couldn't, Couldn't I Just Tell You, so I must still have teenage angst in me. There you go. <laughs> Oh, mercy. Uh, we've got another call. Let's see who this is at 434. That would probably be Bill Bricker. Is it? Hey, Bill, Bill Bricker. Bricker. <laughs> Hello. Hi, Bill Bricker. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. perfect time. So, Bill, <laughs> do you get any questions for Paul? Um. I wonder, I have such odd little quirky little things that have been stuck in my craw about that I've never heard in, any information about. This is not necessarily about something, anything, but since the Albert Grossman thing, Bearsville Picnic video has showed up, and he's talked about Ampex Records, I, I wondered, did anything, who is Ampex Records? Who are they? Did, did, has it oh, ever come um, up? Is it any we've known? Yeah, it did come up. It did come up. Um, I have a weird bad memory for business details. Uh, I recall that we covered it, and I recall that it was Ampex was a label that agreed to release product made by Bearsville, uh, Bearsville Studios, and then I think they either, oh, you know, I wish uh, uh, I wish uh, Mark Nathan was listening. Maybe he is because he used to work for them. He's worked for Bearsville, and he would 
he probably knows exactly what I'm talking about. And but there, it was some kind of feeling that they put it out on Ampex first, and then he got then Albert got the vanity label for Bearsville, which was distributed by Warner Brothers. So they just they just I think Ampex either went out of business or folded into this company or whatever. They bought the company. They just took the Ampex label name off it. Ampex was a tape manufacturer, and um, they for years the the standard studio tape in recording studios was Ampex. Like it was one of the you know known to be the best tape in the business. So I think they either got out of the record business or were bought out in their record division or something. But I I, I remember it had to do with Albert getting a vanity label, which is means you know anything that Bearsville managed they would put out on Bearsville Records. So it was early on. Like in fact that's why I think Runt came out on. Ampex and then came out again on Bearsville. Well, right. He so mentions it in the beginning of that video. He says that they were they tried to help Ampex out, as I think what he said, and that didn't work out. But he just he fluffs over it so fast. But the thing is, when something anything which took a long time to become a hit and didn't become gold until '75, um, you couldn't buy Runt or Ballad. And I just wonder how many millions of dollars were lost because fans wanted that, you know, found something, anything, and wanted to go back. You couldn't buy Naz, you couldn't buy Runt, you couldn't buy Ballad. Um, Yeah, yeah. It was very frustrating for me because I came in at 74, so all I could do was, like, scarf these little, you know, treasures, these little nuggets um, from somebody's brother was a DJ and they had four tracks on a cassette. You know, that was my first introduction right. to Ballad. Right. So, um, but really yes, cool. My brother, so. my brother Peter, my brother Peter bought the single "We Gotta Get You a Woman." So I remember the, I remember seeing the logo on a 45. But uh, we we didn't have the album in the house because uh, we weren't album buying yet. Like I wasn't old enough to be an album buyer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Even I wasn't old enough to do something in those days. Father, <laughs> time over We're here. We're all just. We're all just 17 years old still in our heads. Well, right definitely. I'm, I'm convinced um, of that. Well, you know, it's writing writing the book. Uh, a lot of great things happened because I wrote that book. But writing that book uh, took me back to all of that thing about the joy and energy that you bring to records and at a certain age, and uh, the you know, and the joy and energy that went into those records be, being made and. The, what I call the handmadeness of records, like um, you know, before the days of Pro Tools and presets, a lot of people spent a lot of time carving out sounds to put on on uh, tape, which was then pressed on vinyl. And there's a lot of physicality there, and a lot of that physicality. Oh yeah, is, and the whole line about how yeah. Bohemian Rhapsody is one artist, one writer, one producer but then take a Beyonce song with three lines in it and it has six writers and 12 producers and, you know, is it really better? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, definitely uh, the Queen, Queen is an interesting uh, analogy for that too because, yeah, those records, they would sound different uh, if any of those elements were missing. Like, because they, you know, each... I have recently saw a documentary about Queen and I, I, uh, I always respected them, but I really understood just what a teen queen was, you know, I like to go off on a tween tangent for a second, but, you know, Roy Thomas Baker gets a lot of credit, and rightly so, for The Night at the Opera, but um, Freddie Mercury, visionary genius uh, for arranging and working out all that stuff, 
and you know, and Brian May had the the sense to know that Freddie Mercury would do this and then he would do that and bring in the rock sound and bring in the uh, sonic arranging and stuff and and then even you know the other two Roger and John Deacon the Roger Taylor and John Deacon they they were so each member of that band had a moment where they could shine and they all knew where to not step on each other's toes for many many years like they they did that for a long time and uh, you know because I mean John Deacon would end up writing the hit singles even though you got Freddie Mercury writing these over the top amazing things. John Deacon would come in and write You're My Best Friend or something, and it would become a huge hit. So, like, I don't know any other band that did that. Like, you know, maybe the Beatles. Well, they're, no, I mean, they're another one of the examples of how I think um, there's always these examples of everybody. Bears was always complaining about why Todd wouldn't do this and why Utopia wouldn't do that. But these other bands all did it, and their labels kind of understood it and rolled with it and embraced it and promoted that, that variety. And it, it, I, understand, I see both sides now because in, the old, in those days I was always with whatever Todd was saying. Oh, my record label hates me. They won't want, they want me to do this and they'll write a song. You know, Utopia does set me free, and it sounds like it's about a couple breaking up, but it's literally about how Bears will won't let them go. Um, and then they turn around after their Bearsville deal is done and do the network album, which is like that's the album that Bearsville would have you know, done themselves over if Utopia had produced that album right after Adventures, you know, so, um, mm-hmm. but I, I look at Queen, I look at, like, especially Meatloaf, the fact that Bad Out of Hell took so long, it took years, it took a solid year of touring and selling, and then it's like, it came out in 77, and it was finally getting radio play in like 1980, um, uh, but that proves that if the band sticks with it and if the label sticks with it, then something as bizarre as Bad Out of Hell becomes one of the top selling albums of all time. But then, you know, you take Ra and, you know, they tried it for seven months and they gave up and they went on to something else. So, yeah. Yeah, and you well, touched on a very, very important act. You touched on a very important point, too, Bill, is that back in those days, radio could make a hit, and you had these regional disc jockeys that could break out a song and turn it into a hit, and, and oh man, those days are gone. I mean, it's it's sad, uh, the state of radio, because it's so corporate, and, you know, they're, every, they, these pro playlists are all dictated to the DJs. You just don't have DJs anymore that can whip out an album like and create a hit like Maggie Mae by Rod Stewart, which was, the, which was the flip side, or even you said promote that Meatloaf album, because he happened to be coming through town that day, and you know they started playing it because he hopped up at the radio station. Right, and even you know, "Hello It's Me" wasn't planned to be a single. It, and it, you know, it like started to getting back, played because yeah. they, they remembered it from Nas. The, the DJs remembered it from Nas. To bring it back to Todd too, the the uh, like you said, the um, at that period, you know. Artists were allowed to go make their record, you know, to some degree, if they were signed, you know. And also because he did have some chops from being in NAVs and from being in all the bands he'd been in. So he, he kind of knew a lot. And he, you know, if he, and he was in that period, too, where if he needed to learn about string arrangement, he'd just go do it. And he had a great engineer working with him, Jimmy Lowe. And, like, James Lowe, like, he was as into the experiment as Todd was. So whenever they'd say, let's try this now, he'd go, yeah, sure, let's do it. And then, you know, they had a little lab going there at ID Sound. So, 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 and just that whole period of, like, you know, him living in, in the canyon and driving fast down to ID Sound and La Brea, 
Like it's just it's a very it's a very it's, I'm romantic about it because it is kind of romantic. It, it's like um, a period where all that matters is making those records, and also because I guess he had been, you know, the engineer slash producer for Bearsville had worked on the band Stage Fright by then. He'd worked on Badfinger, I think. Maybe he was just doing bad. Yeah, he just did Badfinger, but about just before then, and and so because I think he did that in '71, and then um, so he'd done and he'd had a hit with Runt, a minor hit maybe, but it was a hit, it was a top twenty hit, and um, you know he had a little bit of that clout on his side that they said, well, okay, go make your record, you know, and he just kept recording and recording and recording, and you could do a two album set in those days, it seemed, you know. Um, just like, you know, now people will do that, but nobody expects to make a living doing it now. I, even some of my favorite artists recently were in articles. I, I think I just saw Amy Mann talking about how she doesn't know how much longer people like her can make records and still consider that a viable lifestyle, you know. So there's 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 a lot of talk now about it being almost, almost impossible to ever have that idea of a career where you're only a record-making person. You know, and it, I really think that's sad, actually. I, and I think a lot of it has to do with people. I mean, I don't want to get down on downloading, like, and sound like an old dude, but it's not even about whether you paid for your download, although it is actually as simple as that. It's that people don't think they're stealing. People don't think that the artist is eventually going to not get that money, and that's the part where I go, wait a minute. You know, people always bootleg records and people always bootleg shows, but it's like there's almost this feeling of devaluation. A certain generation, I don't want to sound like an old person again, but it definitely is a generational thing. They don't know that that's a career. That's a life that somebody's, you know, that's somebody getting a babysitter so they can go on tour or or, or daycare so that they can take the, you know, so their wife can like handle the fort while they're off on tour, their husband while they're off on tour, you know. And it's it's um it's re- I know a lot of musicians, so maybe I know exactly. I've heard way too many stories about people having to hang it up. I had to hang it up. You know, it's 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 not it's not it's most musicians don't make a living doing it. And that's gross. In a lot a few musicians make a very good living doing it. So let's not pretend nobody makes a living, but um it's and I'm not saying anyone's owed a living, but I think devaluing music isn't a good place to start. You know, and I, I'm going to get on a soapbox a little bit, but that's true. David Lowry wrote a really great essay about that. I think everyone should look up the David Lowry essay. I can't remember the name of it, but he uh, he's from Cracker. He wrote a really good essay about revaluing music. It's very important. Well, a lot of guys now they're using this new model, which is yeah. just fantastic. Is the uh, pledge music where the fans, the, the diehard fans, will go ahead yeah, and they'll fund the album. They'll say, "Okay, we want you to make an album," and uh, and they'll pay for the production. There was this band that I that I did some PR work for recently uh, that uh, is out of Canada. I don't know if you've heard of them, Paul. Uh, it's uh, Enter the Haggis. Just a fun little band. I really I'd never heard of them before, and uh, they they pulled up like fifty, sixty thousand bucks in pledges just to get an album made and, and they had uh kind of like we'll segue into Bill's project here where the fans are supporting the ad because they support the artist. Um they had different levels. Like you could pay a thousand bucks to actually appear on the album, you know, playing playing instrument or whatever. Uh, but then but then the money's up front and then if it, if it's bootlegged later on or people are, are downloading it or whatever it's the album's already kind of paid for. Kind of like the cutout used to be in the in the cutout bin. You know, the artist already had their royalties, so you got to buy the album for two bucks in the cutout bin. 
But, you know, it, it, it's just a question of having to, to change the way people think about marketing. And Todd said that back when the digital age was coming coming along. He says, you know, the record Patronet. companies need to react, and they didn't. They, they didn't react, and, and they got caught with their pants down. No, but Todd did, some, Todd did that thing way before, and Prince did it a little bit later. But uh, Patronet was basically, for those who don't know, I mean, you guys know, but for those who don't know, Patronet was basically a subscription service where you would basically fund Todd's career <laughs> – and he was at that point not selling a huge amount of records for Warner Brothers, and then all of a sudden was doing this. And he, I think he said at the time the idea was the records could be cheaper, the relationship with the uh, with the uh, with the fans is is more intimate, and you you still you might end up making more money because people pay less money. More, if more of your fans pay directly to buy your record, then you, the record gets brought into the world with an audience, and there's a reason to make the record. And, you know, I mean, because artists are going to make art, right? Artists are going to make art, and then they're going to have to do something to pay for their life. And that, so why not have it be that we value the art enough that you say, you know, and Prince did it too. The problem was, yeah, the delivery systems weren't in place when they did it. Like back then, there was no broadband, so you couldn't get digital downloads uh, and have it be a practical thing. And CDs, you know, like, I feel like... I feel like something's going to happen and something is already happening. And also, interesting, the, the, the rewave of vinyl now, which I'm not sure if it's an anomaly or not. It's like a hiccup maybe. Like now it may just be like an archaic thing. Like like maybe, you know, like I, I don't, I don't want to say that like to sound like I'm dissing the idea of vinyl. It, uh, the return to the audiophile qualities of vinyl and the handmadeness of vinyl and the object, the article in your hand, whether that's a trend, it certainly won't have the commercial broad reach that it used to. And it, it, it might never die, but I, it, I don't know if it's exactly, going to save, I don't think it's going to save, save the record industry, you know? I think that, that word commercial, I think that commercial is one of the key words. And also the landscape is changing because of the technology and the connectedness. So in a certain way, the average person can do a lot more with the tools than anyone ever could have before. And I think even when the in the start of the digital the digital age, Todd had talked about just being a birth of a bunch of Dreckmeisters and bit twiddlers, you know, because it used to take a lot of, of money to buy a synthesizer, play with it, know how to do it, engineer it. It used to take a lot of money to make a record. And so only the artists that um had enough viability in terms of either talent and or commercial sales potential would have access to those tools. And now, you know, you buy a computer, it comes with everything you could make. Anybody has all the tools they need to make everything, and yet it, it still gets so fragmented. You know, everybody listens in 60 seconds at a time, three minutes at a time. So the whole idea of an album start to finish is gone. I mean, you know, who even has that time to listen to a record for 60 minutes? And um, But the other thing that made me think about as you're talking about the landscape, so, sometimes it's ridiculous to me that Todd doesn't have a label. It's always been kind of crazy to me. You know, why is there a Rundgren radio? Why isn't there a label that would do that? Well, the good news of it is that there doesn't have to be a label anymore. There really, there really doesn't. And I, I think the label idea, even though it's, you know, this big... There is a big market for it, but it's a very narrow group of people that ever get into that echelon. But you have it. You have PayPal. 
you have the tools, you have the distribution network, you have the way to build a fan base. If you have Excel, you can build a fan base. And you take someone like the Dave Matthews Band, they did it, you know, all more or less on their own for years. So when they got around to CBS or whoever it was at Columbia, I can't remember which one picked them up, they made this deal, here's what we can do for you. And they were like, Herman Capshaw said, well, we're already doing that. You're going to have to do better than that because we're – we're growing it. We're cultivating. We are in connection, direct connection with our fans. And, and truth be known, truth be known, the, the old record industry model they they actually they actually didn't they actually didn't mind when an artist already had their their marketing cut out for them because it made it easier. It made it easier. Like then you know then it then really is just about distribution. You know, and then how much are you going to give up though to get that distribution? I mean, a lot of you know a lot of a lot of the old model was the uh, addiction to the advance, you know, and so, so you know, somebody even on like a Paul McCartney stature, they would do a deal with Hear Music and all those things, and for them, it was because they could get that, that thing, you know, the the the, the prestige signing uh, of it, but they don't. Like McCartney's like the last person to need a label at this point, you know, and he's proving it. He's putting MPLs in the last few years have been putting out all the. Paul McCartney solo records and they're doing a great job with it. Like they're doing quality re-releases and they're doing like good booklets to go with it and packaging and you know cloth-bound mm-hmm. books and hardback and and it's it's that's a good example of when you've got the huge clout and up uh, an operating budget, you can have that one-to-one relationship marketing to your fans and you have like you know McCartney's a Definitely an anomaly. I mean, the, uh, you can't the, you can't really say there's a McCartney type career because there's only one Paul McCartney, you know. <laughs> but uh, and Rungren's not yeah, near no, that. Yeah, but yeah. When you talk about clout, there's there's Paul McCartney, and then there's the influence that everybody else has. Because if you're a Beatle, you know, look at what Ringo's done with his with his career. He just you know he just shows up and charges as much money as he wants, and people love it. Um, but then with Todd, I, this is another thing. Getting back into the business side of it. Um, I, I and I only have theories. You know, I read what I give you the trade magazines. I don't have any insider information, but I don't think he actually owns any of the music. He obviously will get royalties if it sells, but it's not his prerogative to go and then release it because all this stuff comes out of Japan and Denmark and wherever else, but it doesn't come from the U.S. There aren't U.S. releases, and I've never understood why. I just kind of have this theory that. Sally Grossman inherited everything, and she hates Todd, and so she won't or never thinks about him, and so they don't think there's a market, and they don't try to repackage it and sell it. Um, I don't. I, I wouldn't go so far I don't as to say she hates Todd. I don't think she hates Todd. I mean, I, I think that's something. That I mean, your opinion is your opinion, and that's valid. But uh, I'm being I'm being facetious in a certain regard because it's, 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 it explains how little I know about what is it. That but I'll tell you this: you know, there wasn't a lot of there. I talked to well, I talked through Sally. Like I talked to somebody who got to Sally, and 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 one of the things that I had a problem with is I wanted to get. There's a reproduction of the inside sleeve of something, anything, on my title page of my book. Right. It's a color, right. Yeah, and I couldn't get the original. I wanted to get like because when you do a book, you want to get the original photograph. You you want to get the right. exactly the Not negative. The yeah. yeah, you want to get you want to get or you want to get the airbrush one, but you want to get the one that they used. You don't you want to get the negative of the one they used. You don't want to get you don't want to just take a photograph off the album cover, which is what we ended up doing, because they couldn't right. find it. They couldn't find it. Uh, Rhino said that they didn't have it anymore. 
uh, Rhino was because it's Warner Brothers and Rhino is their archive label. Like they they were the last people to have it, and they didn't say they they didn't they didn't want to go looking for one thing. I have no idea what their agenda was, but they certainly didn't make it a priority to help me out. And um, <laughs> no, I mean I felt I felt it. it I hear like, you. you know, I, I, I hear and then uh, and then uh, and then but then so I ended up actually crowdsourcing to because because of the fans. And a really nice guy in Toronto sent me a high-res uh, fo- photo- uh, photograph that he'd taken of the gatefold sleeve, and it was a high-res, high-res enough that when we put it down to the book size, it was actually fine. Mm-hmm. But it was, in, in a weird way, it was actually cool because I think it did have a little bit of the fading in it from the record, which is actually a little more fun to put in a in a book about the about the guy, you know. But uh, you know the the degradation that you get from having the album in your collection. But um, but still, yeah, it was um, it was hard to get anyone to basically own the Todd Rundgren catalog, you know, like nobody nobody seemed to know where and, and I had to get Sally's permission to use the photograph, even though she didn't have the photograph. So she sent me a letter saying you have the rights to use it, but she didn't send me the photograph. She couldn't find it. Right. Like so, like other and I wanted to get like the original guys who took the, you know, the, the photographs inside, the black and white photographs inside something, anything, the session photographs, I really wanted those. Oh, right. And the, the poster you know, was made of. Yeah, the one the poster was made of. And, like, that would have been so awesome for the fans and for me to, to to have a photo section that had at least two of those pictures in there, you know. We went to some great lengths to get some other pictures that I, I found. And in this budget issues, we couldn't afford all the Lynn mm-hmm. Goldsmith and all the Bob Gruen pictures. Uh, Bob Gruen took some great pictures from the Wizard of True Star era, and Lynn Goldsmith, of course, took lots of great pictures of Todd over the years. And uh, Gene Lannon, we had to, you know, we, I, Gene Lannon did not get paid what she's worth on that project. She, she was pretty awesome. She took a lot of the later period of Todd pictures, and she's, her pictures are among the best pictures of Todd Rundgren anywhere. You know. Well, let me interject for a second. What about the cover Sorry. itself? I, I way understand it. The cover is actual painting that Todd's in. Where is that painting? Uh, really? I've never heard that. I, that. I I don't know how I know that information, but I have this sort of semi-identic memory where if I read it, it gets in my head, but I don't remember the source. But I've always heard that it was an actual yeah. you know. Well, I don't know did. that story. I'm not saying that your story's wrong. I just I'd never heard that I in all my I can't prove it. I can't prove it. I can't even tell you where yeah. I read it, but it's in my head somewhere. So, but somebody had to do it. Where is that art? You know, yeah. it wasn't taught, and it was somebody. It's not on that. Uh, what came in? You know, inside the album. It's not written in there anywhere on there. It's it's possible. I haven't even had the album. Um, Actually, I could go back and look through the lineup. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I had to borrow the vinyl in order to get the pictures to make the giant blow-up that I just made. Well, I've I've got it. Here, listen, hang on. It says, Album Package Concepts by Todd Rundgren. Back cover photo by Les Underhill. Inside cover, uh, yeah, inside cover photo by James Lowe and Todd Rundgren. But it doesn't say anything about... I got James... James Lowe took the uh, that that Nixon what I call the Nixon photograph, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah. The victory pose. Sunrise. Yeah. But it doesn't say who 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 painted it. That's interesting. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's, but it's just funny. All this stuff is around somewhere, and and then it gets you know stuck into a corner, and Todd moves, and Bearsville moves, and closes their office out of New York, and goes to moves up to Bearsville, New York, and. 
and who knows how many things. And actually, even from the Todd album, which is like what started me off with this whole thing, was I came in too late, so I didn't get the postcard and the Wizard of Truth started. He had my name in the Todd album, and that's why even now I continue to do these projects where I want to get, you know, the fans make the music what it is, as big as it is. Artists can make it, they can visualize it, they can live it, um, they can envision it, they can record it, but until it gets into the head and the hands of fans, it's not even really real yet. It gets amplified by the fans. And so that whole thing about all the names making up Todd's image, that's who the star is, that's, that's the, the grist in my mill of, you know, why I, keep, um, why I keep going and trying to hear from the fans. I mean, there are 500,000 copies of something, anything sold by 75. Who knows how many millions since then. Um, and then every one of Todd's albums in the 70s sold 100,000 copies. Well, Bill, why don't you? I don't know if Paul knows about your project, and that's certainly there's people out there uh, that are listening tonight. Uh, I know you've been on on the show talking about it before, and we've certainly mentioned it. But um, let's let's just get to it. You're on a you're on a deadline, and you've got a project going. Yeah, the project is uh, celebrating 40 years of something, anything. Um, And I'll do the backstory first. I did this first time. I did this was 20 years ago. Sometime around, you know, 91 or so, I started thinking, well, 92, well, that's 20 years since something, anything, we should do something. And I couldn't, anything, right? <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't get support from Todd's label. I couldn't get support from his fan club. Um, I found out how much money it was, and I choked. I thought, this is impossible. But then I finally worked it out to where I could buy ad space in Rolling Stone an inch at a time. And an inch cost X amount of dollars, and I could get 100 names legibly within an inch. So as soon as I got that part of it, where it didn't have to be a full-page ad, you know, and at that time, you know, God, at that time it seemed like a lot of money. Now it's, it's, it's almost a joke, but this is 20 years ago now. And so I just started running ads and buying databases and sending out postcards and, and trying to advertise at shows, and I raised um, $10,000 from about 300 people, and that was enough after all the postcards were mailed and all the ads were bought and all the shirts were made and all the costs and expenses. I had $3,000 left, and so I bought a three-inch ad in that issue of Rolling Stone. And that was kind of my, I'm done with this now. That was 92 I had been a fan for like 18 years or something. I'd been trying all these different avenues and not getting access with it. I tried Todd Data. The whole concept of Todd Data was that if you get the names and addresses of Todd's fans, he doesn't need a record label anymore. You just have the database. You ask him each for 20 bucks. When you get to your budget, you do it. It was like Kickstarter except with direct mail and direct contact. And when I finally got the idea in through Eric Gardner into Todd, Eric told me that he ran the idea by Todd. And Todd was, quote, not interested in making any offers to his fans. This is like 1980, no, 1989, 1990, 92 now by the time this happened. So 92 is when everything broke. It's like 
the ad finally ran. I, I won the album um, T-shirt contest for Utopia Redux that ended up on the album, and I retired. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm done with this. And it took a number of years before I just started to get the itch again. And then, um, so when 30 Years of Todd, the album, rolled around, this would have been 2004, so 12 years later, I'm thinking, yeah, let's try this again, because it's a Todd album, and that's the one that the poster was in, and we'll try it again. And that time, um, it was a little easier. Email was happening. Um, I was still doing merch and things like that, too, so I collected money. Again, I collected $10,000, but it only took $3,000 of investment to create that, that revenue. And so with the 7000 we bought a quarter-page ad, and Rolling Stone for 30 years of Todd, the album. Then you fast forward another few years and you get, um, and I wasn't going to do it again. I swear I wasn't going to do it because it's so much work. Um, <laughs> so mail. much people don't even know how much, you know, correspondence there is and making sure everybody's name is spelled right and where is it positioned and does the artwork right and, you know, are you doing the shirts and you got to mail all the shirts and you got to produce all the shirts and the buttons and the pins and the posters and the books and all of that. But then it was like 2007's rolling around, and I do the math. It's, wow, Todd started Woody's Truck Stop in 67. Rolling Stone started in 67. Now it's 2007. It's 40 years of Todd and Rolling Stone. It was just so simple and so pure. And then it was like, okay, 40 years of Todd in Rolling Stone. That time, um, now you're really kicking it. PayPal's in. Uh, the bulletin boards are starting to go. Beyond a Wizard was going very big at that point. So the connection between the fans electronically allowed for a lot more broadcast and a lot more fans. And this time we got up to 875. And um, if I had had a few more days, I think we could have made the full-page ad because I had been waiting and waiting and waiting. The whole project, I think these things take a year to do. And I'm waiting for, for Rhino to give me permission to put albums in the art. Or, you know, it's 40 years of time. I want all the albums in there. And the Wednesday before my deadline, I had to buy the ad and submit the art on Friday. Or buy it on Friday and put the art in on Monday morning. The Wednesday before, I finally get the letter, the magic letter from the Rhino, whoever it was, who said, yeah, sure, we'll even waive the fee. Go ahead and use the art. So that's when I announced this new level called the promoter level, where if you gave $500, you could pick your favorite Todd album to go in the ad. And in three days, I collected $7,500. I had to stop because I had to buy the ad. Okay. And I think if I had had the weekend to continue collecting, then I think we could have made the difference that I had to go to the full page ad. But it's... You know, there were so many moving parts, and I didn't have it, and I wasn't going to front the money for it. And so we had to, you know, make a decision, and I made the decision on Friday, and we bought the half-page ad, and I submitted the yard on Monday, and, and that's that was the last project. So, so let's fast forward to current Now day. we're here, and it's 40 years of, of something, anything. And this time, the real big difference between this time and all the other times is that there's no merchandise. Um, the Todd store had asked me not to do a shirt design. And um, 
So I had already started the project and had already made a shirt design, and about 50 people got the shirt. <laughs> so anybody that has one of those those uh, maroon or cherry red um, something any 40 years or something anything shirts, I think Becky has a um, has a blue one. Um, those are extremely rare, and they won't there won't be any more of those made uh, because. Todd Store is making a big effort in terms of, of you know, channeling all of the merchandise through the Todd Store and not these other, you know, side, side things. Right. So the only way I could do it then was to say, well, what do people get for more money then? Because the way it used to be, it was, you know, you pay 10 you get this, you know, you get this, pay 25 you get a shirt, you pay 40 you get a shirt and a poster, you pay 75 you get a shirt, a poster, and an album, and a button, and all that. So that's gone. So I just decided to do just a regular, straight-ahead fundraiser kind of thing. The more you pay, the higher your name is. Um, and the way that I twisted that was instead of benefactor, patron, you know, contributor, sponsor, donor, and all that, I just set it up like a concert. So it's lawn seats, balcony, orchestra, front row, mm-hmm. backstage, and all access. And those start at $25.00. And they go in $25 increments from 25 to 150. So the you know the, the and this is where we get to the part of of the two two really big things I need to say today because I have been using October 31st as my deadline um, to try to get into the December 6th issue of Rolling Stone, which is not the last album of the year. Um, the first thing I've decided is I'm going to extend the deadline to go into the last issue of the year. And so now we have until November 23rd to collect names and donations. And I also, a couple of things influencing me with that. One is I have enough, I think, with this, when I get the promoters to finally you know, make their final decisions, we'll pretty solidly be able to close the gap between we're definitely at one-third of a page right now, 300 and some people in, solid third page. And I think with the promoters, you know, I could call it right now and we could collect it and we could run a half page again. And, you know, that's that's great because, you know, times are what they are. People give what they can. It's a fan project. That's as big as it can be. But there were two things that besides that mark that were pressing on me. One is this election is going and going and going, and somehow having having to work on finishing the ad in the middle of the election was like destroying my brain. And so I don't, I didn't want it tied with that. The other thing is, I really do think with this storm and everything shutting down and people's money, it seems it seems frivolous to be saying people right now, give me twenty five dollars more for an album you know, for a for a ad in Rolling Stone. So I feel like I just want to just push it back. We'll go in the last issue of the year. I can collect until the 23rd, and then we can just get a breather and regroup and go back in. 23rd so of November. 23rd of November. So it's I think it's four, how many, what is, today is the first, four, it's four weeks, I think. Four three, weeks from tomorrow. Over three. Okay. Is it three weeks? Is it three weeks from tomorrow? Is that when the, I should know? But yeah. So um, eleven twenty-three is going to be the final, final, final. You know, if you don't get it in, you can you can continue to give money, I suppose, but your name won't be in the ad. 
Um, and another another thing, in order to um, deal with any of the financial concerns that anybody might have, in order to get everybody in who can possibly be in, I'm, I'm announcing tonight a general admission section for the ad. So right now it had been lawn seats was the cheapest and the lowest section. Well, I'm going to push lawn seats up, and we're going to add uh, general admission, and that's going to be $10. So, okay, and, and um, where do they need to go to get this done? Everything happens at toddata.com, T-O-D-D-A-T-A.com. And okay. it's not up there right now because I have to go ahead and turn the code on, but I wanted to go ahead and get the announcements out to say that pushing the bed deadline back to uh, uh, November 23rd, we're opening up the general admission section for $10. And the last thing that I'm going to do, um, which is different, um, that hasn't been a structured level yet, I'm not sure what to call it, maybe sponsors. I'm just sort of making it up now. The stand-ups that I did for the Agora party were, were extremely popular. <laughs> um, uh, what do you call them? Memorabilia to be able to collect a life-size pot. Yeah, they were and cool. So, I, I loved looking at the decorations, by the oh, way. In, in, that was a lot of work, too, but, boy, was that fun. Um, yeah, what a night. I think we uh, got made a lot of noise and impressed a lot of people and collected a pretty good amount of money. We doubled our money that night, that weekend, from what I had in before. So we were at 15% of a full-page ad, and over that weekend we got to the third of the page. So, gosh, could we do that again, <laughs> like now? <laughs> um <laughs> Um, hey Paul. But what I'm yeah, I'm still here. I'm Paul. Yeah. You still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Okay, just wondering. I mean, you've you've written a lot of stuff about a lot of musicians, and you seem super knowledgeable. Have you ever seen a a, a fan base as as loyal as the Todd fans, and and doing projects like this? No, I, I I think the difference is also, I mean, I don't know about the Pearl Jam fans and I don't know about the Grateful Dead fans in terms of the proactive organization seemingly to do it almost in spite of the artist himself. <laughs> like, I mean, Todd does a lot of outreach and stuff and tours, but but like it seems to me like a lot of this stuff is like completely propped up by the fans. And like the infrastructure is there for like for Todd to walk into and collaborate with, where I don't know if I don't like in the case of like a Pearl Jam, I don't think that the, I don't think that their you know their fans follow them around, but I don't think that they're I don't think that, as far as I know they, they maybe they organize gatherings of their tribes, but I don't I don't know, like I I I probably shouldn't comment because I don't know about the other fan bases, but I'm very impressed with the you know and also the the sanity of the of the Todd fans is that. It's not Trekkie, you know, and that's the thing. I I had to tell some people who didn't know, like they were like, "Wow, it must have been like a lot of Trekkies," and because I went to the the, the Todd thing, uh, the thing in Woodstock last year, and and I said, "No, no, no, you like you don't know. These guys are not like that at all. It's actually it's it's very practical, and everyone's very, you know, Todd walks in. There's not this feeling everyone's like bowing to the master. They're just very appreciative of their favorite artist, you know, and mm-hmm. they want to help him, and they they're proactive." And that's that's I think that's what separates it from what I've heard is it's not a passive fan base at all, you know. Right. So right. Com- commendations it's a all around. Too. It's a combination too, because of Todd's attitude towards it, 
you couldn't do this with any major artist because the label would shut you down. They want to control well, all of that. Yeah. And so Todd is in a position where he breeds that kind of loyalty in his fans, but he also just allows, like the whole idea of the interactive music, when he, when he did No World Order and he released, I mean, he released his master tracks to other producers to mix together into a new album. You know, this is not the kind of thing that the average artist does. And it's certainly an average artist might be inclined, but the record label is going to say, what, are you kidding? No, we're not doing that. You know, because they can't get their slice of it. They can't get their control of it. So on the one hand, it's very frustrating to be a fan because there's not a label providing you information on tours. But on the other hand, you get Doug comes in with Rundgren Radio, Roger Linder does, you know, TRC. I'm doing type data on these projects. It's an opportunity unlike, um, you know, it's a, I guess it's the perfect storm of, of how, you know, technology and the artists and the fans just work in a synchronicity to gratify themselves, you know. Um, mm-hmm. but the, under thing, uh, the thing underneath all of it, though, for me, and it starts with something, anything that planted the seeds that then led to the growth that he did as an artist that, you know, brought people in with this sugar and then turned it into a Wizard of True Star and Todd and initiation and healing. The the level of depth of soul-searching that he does that then spills over into the fans who are, like, trying to piece together and cobble together, you know, whatever shape of lives they can have it's all these building blocks that he sings about, the ideas that he, you know, holds up. And I, I remember it so vividly. One time they asked, someone asked Todd, you know, I, I admire you so much for all you do. Who do you admire? He says, I don't admire people. <laughs> Just like that. I admire ideas. And so it was like, okay, well, what is the idea? And the idea is, you know, figure yourself out. Get, get as much of the world as you can and figure yourself out. And then when you figure that out, do that. And so this is why I think Todd fans are different than, you know, than the, and I don't, I don't really, I mean, I don't feel like you could classify any kind of Todd fan. You can classify any kind of music fan because everybody from a teen who goes crazy over Elvis and the Beatles to the aficionado who could quote you every lyric of every Leonard Bernstein you know, orchestrated piece, you're all just in it, you know, and you're responding to it and you're loving it and it's invigorating you. And and so, but I, I really do think there's something um, unique about it that that facilitates this level of, of involvement. And it really is. It's the fans all, I mean, I, uh, you can't say it enough. The fans are what make it. It's a labor of love, and for for a very 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 good album that um, I I wish Todd didn't you know what what was the word that you used dismiss it so often or whatever uh, because I think it's it's a great solid album personally and of course it had his biggest hits on it and charted higher than any of the others but who knows there could be better albums yet to come out of the dude. Paul, are we keeping you well, up late? <laughs> I, I actually do have to get going. I didn't want to be rude and jump in and say I have to split now. Also, I was listening to what Bill was saying, but um, I do have to. I have to go. But it's been real cool talking to you guys. 
And well, I thank you so much you. for coming on the show, and uh, I'm glad Tom hooked it up. Tom, you still there? I, I am. You know, they were asking that in the chat room. I believe Doug is picking on me, saying that I've, I'm, I'm awkwardly silent. But I, I do want to say, Paul, on a personal level, thank you very much. You know, I, I've sung the praises of your book a thousand times. Uh, but it really I know. Just, if there's anybody in the world who hasn't read this thing, you just have to read it. Give us your friends. What's the, name of the, book, what's the name of the book again, Tom? <laughs> I mean, uh, Tom? Can't, you know, it's been so long since I read it. A Wizard of True Star in the studio, yes. Todd Rundgren. A Wizard of True Star, Todd Rundgren in the studio. Todd by Rundgren Paul in the studio. And so, I think uh, it's published by Jawbone Press, and I think you can get it at Amazon. I'm, or your favorite independent bookseller might be able to order it. <laughs> Yay! And it's oh, well worth the read. Hey, before I leave, can I just reiterate that Todd fans have another special reason to call the Red Cross and donate money because our good friend Kaz Sultan, as you know, is a, a citizen of Staten Island, which is yeah. one of the worst hit. Staten Island is one of the worst hit by Hurricane Sandy. Uh, major flooding. A lot of people are devastated. There's lots of news reports tonight on NBC about about Staten Island. I, I believe Kaz was saying that his his house was spared, but the neighbor had a tree through their house or something. And so... Uh, Text 90999 to give 10 bucks to the Red Cross or go to redcross.org. I just I feel like we'd be doing a disservice if we didn't mention that on behalf of good old Chasm, you know? Idea. Perfect idea. Also, I, also, I just wrote liner notes for his uh, 1982 album that there, there's going to be a re-release of, so uh, that's kind of new. Great album. Yeah, the one that he did with uh, Bruce Fairbairn. This is his first yeah. solo album. And I did yeah. all new interviews. I did all new interviews for him. Uh, that was called light, light, Lights On? Well, the album's called Lights On. No, that's Bryce Felton. Yeah, this was oh, called Cat Felton. This is the, the one that's kind of got the piece of cake on the cover. Yep. Yeah, no. it's kind of a new wave. It's a very new wave cover. Like, I remember staring at that cover. It would confuse me. I'd flip it over, and I was like, how'd they do that? How'd they do that? You know, <laughs> with him on one side and then also on the other side. But. Well, in, in the days before Photoshop, they literally cut photographs and reposted, repasted them together and photographed that. But um, that album's coming out, uh, the same people that did the uh, European, um, the English re-releases of all the Todd albums. So it's Demon, Edsel, and Val Jennings there is the uh, the project guy. He's a huge Todd fan, so he's putting out all the, anything related to Todd Rundgren he's putting out. So. He loves Chasm's solo record, so he's he's putting that out too. I think it's the first time. No, it's not the first time it's been on CD, but it's certainly uh, maybe one of the first in a long time. And I I can't think of anyone who's put it out in America actually. Yeah, I don't think <laughs> it was ever in America because they used to sell it at the the uh, TR Bazaar, but it was like a burned copy, and because they never had an official yeah. release of it. But it's it's such a fantastic album, and uh, I just absolutely fell in love with it the first time I heard it. And Chasm. I remember one interview where he talks about it. He says this was the album that, that basically when he wrote Set Me Free, he was telling Grossman to let him free the label, and Grossman said, oh, you're not ready to do a solo album yet. And that's right. why he kind of came back to Utopia. But it's it's a great album if you haven't Yeah, we talked it. we talked about that actually for the interview for the liner notes. We talked about about the period with Albert and like what you just referred to, and we talked about uh, some of the stories about uh, it was a very weird time for him. He was – He's kind of like living wild in L.A., and uh, you'll read it. It's kind of a neat story. He goes to L.A. basically and and basically enjoys being a rock star at a very young age. I think he might have been 20, and uh, and he just was planning to leave Utopia, and then he ends up leaving Utopia, and then various things happen, and he ends up going back. But um, in the interim, he made this record with uh, – and Buck Dharma from the Blue Easter Cult is on that record. So. Yeah, he is. 
So uh, anyway, I should I should go and thank you very much. Uh, help out Staten Island and uh, something anything rules. And uh, <laughs> it does. Good talking to you. Good talking to you guys. Take yeah, care, Paul. Thanks, Paul and we'll you. we'll catch time. you next time. Okay. Bye. Bye. All right. That was that was okay. pretty cool. He stayed on a good long time. Um, Bill Bricker, you still yeah, here? I love, I love that. Yeah, I'm here. I, I love those conversations, though. That's the kind of conversation someday I would love to have with Todd, you know, just not about trivia about his, um, you know, his particular, like, you know, who did you play with or when did you, what did you wear when you recorded, you know, not that stuff, but just talking about the music industry mm-hmm. and the changes. And you see some of the YouTube is just, fantastic with people coming up with these gems. There's a recording of Todd talking about computers in 1979. And he's talking about the bits and the bytes and the terabytes and and all of it. This is in 79. And so how far ahead is this guy's brain (laughs) where everybody is? And then uh, it makes it very interesting, but at the same time, I think it, it is not in sync with what's happening now, and so he suffers for it, for being that forward-thinking. But amazing stuff. Yes, he definitely is. Uh, we've got a caller, and um, I hope that it's not a question for Paul, but I know I've got two experts here on the show with me with Tom Jennings and Bill Bricker, so maybe uh, one of you guys can answer this person's question. They've been on hold for quite a while. 617, are you there? Six one seven. Uh oh. We lost him. We lost him. I'm so sorry. Hello. Wait, wait, wait. No, I just put you back on mute. Now hold on. Six one seven. Yeah, I had my phone muted, so I forgot I had muted it. Who do we got here? Is that Grady Moses? Yeah, it's Grady. Hi, Grady. Um, Hi, Grady. Hey, how are y'all doing? I was, oh, it sounds like we're doing better than you. You sound a little beat. Yeah, it's been a rough time. I was. Uh, you don't want to hear what I did yesterday for a medical procedure, but <laughs> anyway. You're um, right, I don't. God, no. Uh, I thought I you were going to mention something about the bad weather. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was figuring it would be a while longer before I, before I got in. Um, I just uh, wanted to thank... Um, Bill for everything that he's been doing for the last few years because in the end down the road 50 years from now the efforts that the core fans put out right now are going to have a lot to do with how Todd is remembered Um, uh, we are a part of his legacy our actions our activities our faithfulness uh, how hard we push and, and how faithfully we follow is going to be a large part of the legacy that's talked about uh, in years to come. So we can't flag, we can't give up, we can't slow down. Um, whatever we've got, we got to put into it if we give a shit. Wow. Hey, that's our, that's, first, that's um, our first word of the evening, though. We heard that. Isn't <laughs> <laughs> Well, so. but- and it didn't come that, from me. <laughs> I mean, right, sometimes well, uh, sometimes I think there really should be uh, an article, at the very least, a brochure, shall we say, or something, um, on on just how uh, 
Well, I guess the Todd Stock movie uh, would count as showing how faithful this man's fans are, but but that was just a, a small handful of fans out of the you know the global perspective. But uh, um, yeah, I think we're pretty cool people. Yeah. That was that, that was, was all... very well put, Grady. I, I I think you 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 articulated in a way that I sometimes forget about. You know why am I doing it? <laughs> and I yeah, a well, lot of times I'm looking back, but you're looking forward, and that's excellent. Yeah, you know, the reason we do it is because it needs to be done. Um, I uh, I lose myself in it. It's 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 not about me at all. It's just that. Uh, that man um, uh, deserves the attention. He deserves the respect, and uh, the the world not giving him as much as he ought to get means that those of us who know it should be giving him enough to compensate. Yeah, I would agree. Know, with Grady, Grady, you bring up a great point as well. You know, it's interesting because I'm a I'm a history guy, both a music history guy and an actual history teacher, believe it or not. And, uh, you know, when you go back and you dig into archives and you look at things, I mean, those things are very tangible. And even if you think about the different uh, different monuments that are built now with the bricks and the names in it that, that carry on the legacy. So, I mean, these types of, of projects that you do build really take individuals and, and there's an important part of their life. And you can argue how important it is. You know, I mean, people call, may call Todd fans fanatics or you know, we think too much of a, of a musician or whatever. But to me, the music is incredibly important. And uh, it's it's when people talk about me, they say, oh, there's that Todd Rundgren fan, you know, and, and they kind of joke about it. But it's important to me. And I think to be a part of that actual legacy and the piece of the history of, of Todd is hugely important to a lot of us. I mean, I uh, I think I've told Doug on, on a number of occasions, you know, being able to write that bio piece for the Rundgren Radio website, it, it's just a huge honor for me. I just I love being a part of the the community. It's just it, it's just a great feeling. Well, each of us gives to the extent. Go ahead, Grady. Go I was just just going to say it, it. It's very much like that widow's mite that my dad, the Methodist preacher, used to talk about. Each of us gives. Uh, to the experience as much as we can. And some of us can give more than others, and uh, we all should do what we can and feel good about it. Yeah. Well, the other the other thing, too, that you touched on, Tom, I think is a good point. I think most every Todd fan I know, anyway, can relate to this. You, you, you know people, they get to know you. Um, I try to be a little more circumspect about Todd with people anymore. Like I'm at a new job right now. They don't even know I know who Todd Rundgren is because I, I don't I don't broadcast that way. Um, I wait till people ask me. You know, I put the toddle head on my desk and I wait till someone asks me about it. But once they do get to know you and they get to know, they, they go call you and they say, "Hey, I heard Todd on the radio. I thought of you." Right. And there are many people that I know. I know someone who's like a Rick Springfield. You know. Fan. And so I hear Rick Springfield, and I look. Oh, I think about that person. So we do, you know, every, all this, this, um, the ripples, you know, just like in Born to Synthesize, you know, the waves just build on each other, reflect off each other, and and go forward. And so I think we can, um, we can influence it to a certain degree. We can splash around it a little bit, 
and we can make some noise and are all the time humility and um and desire not to be famous in that way and not abuse that fame and not just be a cult of personality. As a fan, I still sometimes feel like I'm frustrated that you have to explain who he is. You shouldn't yeah, Definitely. Hey, I had a funny story happen today. I began physical therapy for my shoulder today. And I'm laying on my back, and this woman is, I don't know, beating me into submission. <laughs> That's what it felt like. And she was asking me, you know, what what do I do? And I was telling her a little bit about uh, Run Run Radio and, and uh, Onward Promotions and some of what's involved. And this lady from across the room who also was laying on her back being forced into submission, she said, Todd Rundgren? Oh, my gosh, I used to make out to his music. And all I could say to her was, oh, my gosh, someone who didn't say who? <laughs> it was so refreshing. It, it, it happens so rarely. Um, yeah. But yeah. It, it does, it, and that was great about being in Cleveland, too, because I started doing this thing. I would just go and say, hey, do you know who Todd Rundgren is? And really, eight out of the ten people I would ask would say, oh, yeah, and not just – I think I do. They really knew. And I said, next question, do you know he's playing at the Agora? I'm like, well, yeah, no. really. And said, well, how could they? And that's, mm-hmm. I'd love to be able to take this idea of collecting money and doing, you know, tour announcements and all of that, but it just, it gets so nebulous. People don't know exactly what they're giving for and when they give and how you do it, how you measure it. And so the ad becomes a way to just make this marker and, you know, make a little shout out. But and speaking of shout outs, I just realized I'm very negligent in doing this and talking about Cleveland. I I owe big, big thanks to Nancy and Julie and Lori and Elaine and a host of people and Berlin and people that I didn't even know, the Joes who sh- who showed up. We worked all together six hours to set up that party with a giant, you know, something anything album and a giant Back to the Bars album, both of which are still available, by the way, for any promoters who might want to. <laughs> you you plug really good. You do a great job, Bill. Uh, you, those girls did help out a lot. Everything looked great. And um, yeah, I want everybody to go to toddata.com and contribute your at least your $10 for your general admission, quote-unquote. General admission is open. General admission is open. But you know what, guys? I'd like to play a little bit of music as we go out tonight. Um, so, if you have, do you have anything else to say, or are you done, Bricker, or what's the deal? I'm, I'm sure I've bent enough ears for the for the <laughs> evening. Um, but again, thanks to to Doug and to Tom for for coming out to set up this show, and to a co-host, and for you, Mel, and um, I miss you guys. And I look forward to the next time we all get together, and we'll see everybody in Rolling Stone. That's right, Bill. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for being being on the show so long, and I'm sorry I kept you on hold for so long, too, earlier. Oh, no problems at all. I love okay. listening to guys talk about knowledge. Okay. we got to talk right. about this stuff. Nobody else will. Good night, you guys. <laughs> That's right. All right. So, Tom, you're still there? I am, you know, and, and uh, I, you know, thanks to, to Doug, if you're listening, for letting me host. Bill, thanks for letting me be a part of this project uh, and helping my little PR company kind of get off the ground and 
Uh, it's just it's just great. And no, you know, hey, you're wonderful. I can't tell I'll, you that now. I'll tell you what, Doug may lose his job over this. You did a great job. <laughs> well, anytime Doug doesn't uh, want to do this, I, I've offered. I'd love to do it on a regular basis. It can only get better. I, I do want to say one thing because I meant to mention this earlier. Um, you know, I do a lot of, of media stuff, and, and I've been very blessed to cover a lot of Todd Rundgren shows for uh, BackstageAccess.com. And uh, Mary Lou Arnold is just such a dream to work with. If anyone knows her, just, you know, if you get the word out to her, just she's in my heart. I just appreciate everything she's done for me as far as getting access to the shows, photo passes, and things like that. And, uh, you know, I deal with a lot of media people, and she's top-notch, you know, and it's just another testament to being part of this community. She is. She's wonderful. And uh, we love what you do, too. And uh, we'll get you back on, okay? Because I want to continue doing these shows. And, uh, you know, don't know if I'm up to it for, you know, weekly again, but maybe every two weeks or something like that and get some guests back on and, you know, delve deeper. So, I've got some, I've got some connections in the music business, so if we can, uh, if you want to start looking for some guests or be some be some good ones. I think we'd have a lot of fun with. Perfect, perfect. Okay, Doug is in the chat room telling us to get a room and that we need to play some music. So I think that's what I'm going to do now. Uh, we'll probably run into the archives, but we got some good stuff. Uh, we got first we got something uh, a live version of "You Left Me Sore" from something anything. So. Good night, Tom, and everybody, enjoy your night. Listen to some music here. All right, good night, Mel. Good night, everyone.
This is Todd Rundgren, and you're listening to RundgrenRadio.com.